Hi, and welcome back to A Feminist Therapist, a podcast at the crossroads of politics and mental health. I'm your host, David Averick, psychotherapist and social worker, broadcasting to you from Baltimore, Maryland. Today's episode does not really require a trigger warning. Back in the 1970s, in Vancouver, British Columbia, a psychologist named Bruce Alexander was conducting research which would come to be known as the Rat Park Experiments. These experiments represent one of the great ignored discoveries in the history of psychology. One part of Alexander's experiment consisted of taking a bunch of lab rats who lived in cages and getting them addicted to opioids in the form of water laced with morphine, and then introducing them to Rat Park, which was a multi-level rat playground with toys, activities, exercise wheels, stuff to chew on, you name it. Also residing in Rat Park were other rats, non-addicted rats, both male and female, along with space for them to mate. Once they arrived in Rat Park, the opioid-addicted rats were offered ongoing access to morphine water. But surprisingly, they rejected it. They weaned themselves off the morphine, and then they stayed off it. They became normal rats. That is, their addictions went away. Subsequent studies have found that environmental enrichment reduces cocaine-seeking behavior in mice, and that environmental enrichment can eliminate established addiction-related behaviors in mice. Conversely, removing mice from enriched environments has been shown to increase their vulnerability to cocaine addiction. What the Rat Park experiments demonstrate is that an animal's experience of its lived environment has a greater influence over its vulnerability to addiction than simple exposure to a supposedly highly addictive drug. Rat Park, like I said, is a crucially underexplored chapter in the history of addictions treatment, and the lesson that it offers holds major implications for how we as individuals ought to be thinking about managing our own relationships with drugs and alcohol, as well as how we as a society should conceptualize policy strategies for dealing with addiction and with the so-called opioid crisis. As feminists, we ought to be curious about why the Rat Park data has been sidelined during this time of national head-scratching over substance use. And we also need to start asking who benefits from ignoring the impact of lived environment when trying to understand vulnerability to addiction. Indeed, just like in the case of major depression, we are constructing addiction as either a moral failure or as a biogenetic condition, both of which severely limit our ability to respond effectively to the problem at hand. We're starting off today's episode with the clinical side of things, a rough and dirty primer on how to understand and treat addiction, and this is based on my own experience as a therapist and a social worker. So in treating addiction, the first thing to recognize is that in the vast majority of cases, the addiction itself is rarely the problem, but instead represents the signs and symptoms of a different problem. Drug users themselves will often point this out, but usually we don't listen to them because the opinions of drug users are not taken seriously in our society. But in fact, most of the time, problematic substance use represents merely a symptom or a manifestation of a deeper, underlying problem. This insight goes back to Freud, who was the first one to point out that human behaviors which appear illogical often reflect unconscious inner motivations. On the one hand, that idea is pretty simple, but simultaneously, it can be a little tough to get our heads around, because due to the war on drugs, we've had a lot of bullshit pounded into our skulls about the intrinsic evils of drugs, heroin, and crack in particular. 
While, of course, addiction and overdose are terrible things, strictly speaking, the war on drugs is a fairly arbitrary undertaking. Because even as deaths from drug overdose increased to about 63,600 in 2016, that number is still about 25,000 less than the number of people who died that same year from alcoholism. Alcoholism is a far more deadly epidemic in our society than drug addiction, and it has been for far longer. Cigarettes, meanwhile, caused 480,000 deaths that year. Why not declare war on those products? Oh, that's right, because that would involve imposing restrictions on the so-called free market, which violates conservative orthodoxy, and of course because both tobacco and alcohol have very well-funded political lobbies which resist effective regulations. For example, have you been to Europe lately? Packs of cigarettes there don't even have branded labels on them anymore. All the brands look exactly the same, because on all sides of the cigarette box, there's large pictures of premature babies and people dying from emphysema. That type of limitation on branding represents a form of regulation which the tobacco lobby in America has successfully opposed so far. Okay, back to clinical stuff. Another reason it's hard to see addiction as a symptom and not a problem is that lots of us know somebody who's had an addiction. And if you've ever seen an addiction up close, then you know that depending on the severity and longevity, the addiction can be a total shit show of self-destruction, deception, betrayal, burned bridges, and of course, human suffering. It's hard to look at a family member or a friend who has that constellation of experiences and be like, her addiction isn't the problem, it's just the symptom of an underlying problem. Because clearly the addiction is causing so much life disruption, sometimes to the point of death. But this is just one of the weird things about being a psychotherapist, is that since I'm not part of the client's family, I'm often able to observe a situation with distance and some detachment, which can help me to contextualize the problem both within the broader social context, as well as within its own individualized explanatory ecosystem. What I mean is that all mental health problems, including addictions, always exist simultaneously on both levels, both the society level and the individual level, macro and micro. But individual sufferers and family members often are too close to the problem and too overwhelmed by its crisis level proportions to see the big picture stuff very clearly. That's one way that therapy can be helpful. But the point is that in my experience generally, it's the very rare addiction where the root problem is a particular substance in and of itself. So let's use a quick for instance. As mentioned in a previous episode of A Feminist Therapist, the human brain does not distinguish between physical pain and psychological or emotional pain. It's the same receptors in the brain that get activated in both cases. So in this way, we can compare someone with severe chronic physical pain, let's say due to a car accident, who then gets prescribed opioids by their surgeon. We can compare that person with somebody who picks up some oxy on the street so that they don't have to feel horrible all the time about the fact that they were abused and abandoned during childhood. Both of these individuals are at risk of developing an addiction because they both have untreated chronic pain. But in both cases, the problem is not the OxyContin itself, even though the individual's relationship to the Oxy can quickly take over their entire life so that every part of their waking life in some way revolves around the activities associated with getting access to the substance. Rather, in both cases, the real problem is the untreated chronic pain. 
What follows is the idea that if you can identify the underlying problem and find a way to treat that, then the individual's desire to continue to use the harmful substance will naturally decrease over time. I have seen this phenomenon occur many times in therapy, and it's actually an idea that's transferable to understanding and treating many so-called problem behaviors. From a functionalist perspective, humans behave in ways that they believe, either on a conscious or unconscious level, will get their needs met. If the strategy to get a certain need met is unworkable or not adaptive, a therapist can assist the client to identify alternative strategies that cause less harm, but which also help to get the same need met. It's the meeting of the need that's of crucial importance, because when the underlying need is met through a more adaptive strategy, the maladaptive strategy becomes vestigial and starts to drop away as it's no longer needed in the same way. Easier said than done, of course. For that to take place, the person experiencing the addiction has to really want to do that work, recognize that their addiction is unworkable, figure out what the root causes are, and then come to terms with the fact they're experiencing problems that they now have to manage going forward. Because, for example, the reality of chronic pain is that it fucking sucks. If you've ever had to deal with chronic pain, then you know what I mean. And it has a way of shrinking down your world, reducing the breadth and scope of your attention because it's so hard to focus on anything but the fact that you're in pain. And because chronic pain is frequently an invisible condition, it can be very hard for other people to appreciate your situation and to empathize with you. And eventually they get tired of hearing about it. But because the experience of pain is so consuming of your attention, it becomes the only thing that you're able to talk about. It's a vicious cycle. As for other ways of getting the need for pain relief met, I find that mindfulness training is a really important part of managing chronic pain. And in fact, research shows that individuals with chronic pain who utilize mindfulness meditation regularly report both lower levels of pain as well as less depression about having chronic pain. But to get to a place of feeling motivated to do mindfulness meditation training, which requires effort, first you have to accept the fact that there may not be good analgesic medications that are both safe and effective to take long term. Good pain management often means doing more than just taking pills. In general, it's not a huge mystery what the root cause of an addiction is. The way to figure it out is to start by asking the question, how does using drugs help? This is a question that comes out of solution-focused therapy. So think of the person in your life who has a substance use problem, including if that person is you, and imagine asking them that question. How does using drugs help you? Or use it for any problem that you struggle with. How does it help you to yell at your boyfriend? How does showing up late for work every day help you? The answer to that question often gives you ideas for what the treatment could consist of. For example, maybe drugs are a way to mitigate intense grief at the loss of a parent. If so, grief counseling could be indicated, or maybe getting high helps to cover up a sense of shame for an inability to function economically or to obtain a good job, and so career coaching might be an appropriate treatment. Or you could go in the direction of providing psychoeducation, i.e. helping the person to better appreciate the structural inequalities embedded within a post-industrial, service-based, neoliberal gig economy that offers so little to so many and so much to so few. Because often, 
Developing a more sophisticated context for understanding a problem reduces the sense of shame that comes up with having a problem. This is why it's important, in my opinion, to bring in conversations about rape culture with victims of sexual trauma. When we learn to appreciate that men are essentially trained from a young age to value their own sexual needs over the rights of women and girls, and that rape and sexual abuse are merely the logical conclusion of that social norm, then victims often become able to start to let go of some of the shame and self-blame that almost universally attend that type of trauma. In both cases, taking steps to create a sense of progress around addressing the underlying problem can have the power to reduce, in the drug user's mind, the sense of urgency around continuing to use drugs in the same way at the same rate. And this creates room for change. I like to describe this approach to therapy as functionalist because it's less concerned with right and wrong, good and bad, than with what's workable and what's not workable. One of the tenets of solution-focused therapy, which is a modality that I enjoy a lot, is that small changes create room for larger changes over time. Making some progress with appropriately grieving the death of a parent may result in a slight but noticeable decrease in the amount of alcohol consumed in a week. That's helpful data because it represents a piece of demonstrable progress some proof which indicates to the person that it is in fact possible to create change with respect to drinking. Frequently, with an entrenched problem, whether it's alcohol or drugs or depression or anxiety, merely proving to yourself that it's possible to experience some amount of change is a really important first step toward cultivating the self-confidence that's required to continue treading the really challenging path of increasing your well-being. For example, when you're in the depths of a depression or an addiction, often it's really difficult to conceptualize all the changes that need to be made. And that's why in therapy, I often like to start with low-hanging fruit, or what I like to call the smallest possible change, and then use that as a springboard to imagine bigger changes. My approach to treating substance use disorders is also rooted in the philosophy of harm reduction. Harm reduction is all about increasing health and well-being, even when unsafe behaviors are present. It comes from a recognition that drug and alcohol use is normal, and that most people use drugs and or alcohol at some levels. I know that I do, so it's certainly unfair of me to judge other people who choose to use drugs or alcohol. A classic example of a harm reduction policy is needle exchange services. Needle exchanges provide clean needles to intravenous drug users so that they don't share their needles or use dirty needles in order to shoot up. The existence of needle exchange is based on a non-judgmental acceptance of reality. That is to say, people are going to shoot up using drugs even if we might prefer that they not do that. Offering clean needles to drug users decreases their chances of acquiring HIV, hepatitis, and other infections. And this is a way of increasing safety, even in the context of a risky behavior like IV drug use. The other thing about needle exchanges is that they save taxpayers buckets of money because it's a lot cheaper to prevent new infections than to treat HIV and hepatitis in emergency rooms and outpatient clinics, especially when people are uninsured. Needle exchanges are also places where people who have addictions can build relationships with service providers who don't judge them. And what that means is that if the drug user wakes up one day and decides that she wants to access treatment, then she'll know who to talk to about getting some help. 
This idea that we're exploring, that an addiction usually represents a visible manifestation of an invisible problem, ties into this idea that pretty much all human behavior makes sense given the right context. Human beings by their very nature are problem solvers. Our minds experience a problem, for example, anxiety or depression or pain or grief or loneliness or abandonment, and then our minds suggest solutions to that problem, and the solution may be alcohol or drugs. Our mind may suggest other solutions as well, more workable ones like going to yoga or talking to a therapist or writing in a journal. But there may be internal or external barriers preventing the person from engaging with healthier solutions. One thing that's very common is that for those of us on the outside, the behaviors associated with misusing substances often appear terribly illogical. However, within the lived ecosystem of the individual's mental health, using substances often feels like the most rational choice available to get a particular need met, despite the cumulative negative consequences of doing so. One way that having an addiction can quote-unquote help people is that for some people it provides them a sense of affiliation and community when they feel they don't fit in with any other segment of society. The need to belong is a really crucial human need. And the way that we as a society exclude, marginalize, and stigmatize drug users will only reinforce their addiction-related behaviors. The reason that this way of thinking about drugs, that is, being curious about how using drugs helps the individual, the reason that this sounds strange and unfamiliar is because it represents an amoral approach to addiction. Amoral is a different word from immoral. Immoral means bad or wrong. Amoral means unconcerned with right and wrong. Because of growing up in our Judeo-Christian culture, we all internalize certain ideas of right and wrong from a young age. Frequently, we get all fucked up over them. See, for example, internalized homophobia. But in my therapy, right and wrong do not factor into the discussion very frequently. I'm far more concerned with what's workable and what's unworkable what's functional and what's dysfunctional. The problem is that we're so accustomed to thinking of addiction as a moral problem, as a form of personal weakness and personal failure, and we have so many policies in place, in particular policies related to criminalization and incarceration, which reinforce in our minds the association between drugs and immorality, that it's really hard to shake this notion that a non-judgmental approach to addiction, an approach which doesn't try to impose a morality of abstinence in particular, is far more practical and effective than a shaming or blaming approach. 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous insist on abstinence, which can make them inaccessible for a lot of people. And AA also ignores the fact that its founder, Bill W., only got sober based on a spiritual awakening that he had from tripping out on the psychedelic effects of the belladonna plant. Psychedelics, in fact, are currently being used in fascinating ways to treat addiction. Which isn't to say that AA is not a great choice for lots of people. I definitely know folks who depend on the support and structure of AA. But shaming and blaming is, of course, a natural consequence of the war on drugs. It's because of the war on drugs, which is defined as a set of domestic, social, and criminal justice policies initiated by Richard Nixon and expanded by subsequent presidents of both parties. It's because of the war on drugs that for a long time, including right now, most people believe that the root cause of addiction lies within the drug itself. This idea that drugs themselves cause addiction is where we get dumb ideas like, if you try heroin even once, it can make you an addict for life. 
Embedded in that statement is a belief in the power of heroin to overwhelm the capacity of the human mind to cause some sort of enslavement of the mind to the drug. But this is not true, and science has never proven this to be true, whether we're talking about crack or heroin or meth or weed or alcohol or whatever. Think back to Rat Park. If morphine, an opioid, is so addictive, then the rats would have kept using it once they got to Rat Park. Psychological dependence is of course a thing, and people who have unhealthy relationships with substances will frequently experience thoughts or beliefs that they quote-unquote need a substance in order to function. But the existence of that feeling does not make it factually true. As my therapist friend Alex likes to say, feelings aren't facts, but they sure feel like facts. Back in episode 2 of The Feminist Therapist, we discussed how, when it comes to depression, people used to subscribe to the moral failure theory, which meant that back in the day, people thought you got depression because you were weak. And now we've moved to the biogenetic theory, which means that people think that if you're depressed, then you must be suffering from an organic brain illness, or you have a chemical imbalance, or you have bad genes. We talked about how the problem with both of these theories is that they localize the cause of the depression within the individual, while ignoring all external structural and environmental factors such as racism, misogyny, economic inequality, homophobia, and transphobia, which also are proven to contribute to depression. Another problem we examine with this setup is that when you conceptualize depression as strictly biological, then it follows that the solutions to the problem also are going to come from biology. And indeed, we can see how when we talk about solutions to depression, antidepressant medications are often the first idea that pops into mind. This is opposed to more structurally oriented solutions for treating depression, which may include overthrowing rape culture uprooting racism, and mitigating extreme economic inequality. That is, treating some of the major root causes of depression. And like I mentioned in previous episodes, in my experience and within my belief system, you don't need to completely overthrow rape culture in order to start experiencing some relief from the depression caused by rape culture. The act of participating in smashing rape culture and the patriarchy Acts which will consist of joining with others, building power, talking about and working on making the world better and safer for people who don't have male privilege. All that stuff helps to treat the depression that's caused by rape culture. The same goes for the depression caused by poverty and racism and homophobia and transphobia. The underlying idea is the way in which we go about defining the problem has a great deal to do with what solutions we end up pursuing. Okay, back to feminism. When we put energy into decoding the terms of the conversation, when we notice what we're talking about and how and why, we are being feminists and using our feminism. So now we're going to turn that same lens onto this conversation around addiction, and we're going to find a similar trajectory. It used to be the case that addiction was socially constructed as a moral failure, and to a large extent, it still is. But now it's increasingly common, especially for policymakers, to talk about addiction as a biomedical illness. And just like with depression, while the movement from moral failure to biomedical illness does represent a step forward in some respects because it means that we treat people with substance use problems with a little more dignity, 
It's still highly problematic because it localizes the source of the addiction within the individual and ignores environmental contributing factors. It's definitely worth pointing out that once the phenomenon of addiction began to spread from inner cities to the suburbs, that is, from majority people of color populations to white populations, that this shift in rhetoric from moral failure to biomedical view of addiction began to pick up real steam. So now let's dial up the feminism in order to critically examine the three main messages we receive from society about what causes addiction. First, that drugs themselves cause addiction because they are mysterious and evil and powerful. This is a key message of the war on drugs. The second message is that people of weak character succumb to addiction. This is the message of the moral failure theory of addiction. And the last message to decode is that addiction itself is a biomedical illness and should be treated just like any other biomedical health condition with inpatient rehab or prescription medications. All of these messages are problematic. Let's go one by one. First, think back to Rat Park. Before arriving at Rat Park, the opioid-addicted rats were choosing morphine-laced water because their lives were spent trapped in sterile cages with no companionship and nothing to do and no place to use their rat skills. In that type of hell, with no stimulation and nothing to anticipate, who wouldn't take drugs? Just for a break in the routine, some relief from boredom. But once those rats were put in an environment that allowed them to gain access to a fuller expression of their rathood, it turned out that their need for opioids decreased. Remember, when treating addiction, we always ask, what purpose does this addiction serve? In the case of the lab rats, it turned out that using morphine was a great way to experience relief from the horribly restricted life of being a lab rat. And so when we look at people all around our country using and overdosing on opioid narcotics, we ought to be asking ourselves, is there something going on in the lived social environment that's making heroin use a logical decision? If we need further evidence of the fact that drugs themselves are not what causes addiction, then we should look at the case of heroin use during the Vietnam War. In the closing years of that war, heroin use was widespread among American servicemen in Vietnam. Some estimates suggest that nearly 20% of American soldiers in Vietnam were addicted to heroin and using it regularly. Given the supposedly super addictive power of heroin, of course, it would make sense that similar rates of addiction would follow these men home after the war. But that's not what happened. Follow-up research indicates that of the thousands and thousands of heroin-addicted soldiers, only 5% continued to remain addicted to heroin following their return back to the U.S. That is, in 95% of cases, their addictions simply disappeared naturally. Why is that? Using our functional tool for understanding addiction, that is the simple question of how does addiction help, we can surmise that heroin helped these soldiers in Vietnam by soothing their traumatized minds and bodies during the time period that they were trapped within the unbearable agony of a hopeless, politically misguided, and brutally violent conflict. In that situation, heroin use has a certain logic to it. When the thing that you're feeling is unbearable and should not be felt, then maybe you'll reach for something that makes it so that you don't have to feel the thing you're feeling. Another consequence of focusing on the addictive power of substances themselves rather than on the circumstances in the life of the individual that create vulnerability to addiction 
is that recovery from addiction is frequently conceptualized strictly in terms of abstinence. Abstinence from substances, in fact, is often thought of as the first and most necessary step toward recovery. But I'm here to tell you that a lot of the time this is not the case. Speaking from data, alcohol and drug use represent normal human behaviors, and even normal animal behaviors, given that we see plenty of non-human species regularly ingesting psychoactive substances in the wild, species including dolphins, monkeys, elephants, horses, ravens, and jaguars. The focus of a harm reduction approach to treating substance use is to acknowledge that substance use is normal and to help people bring their lives into greater balance, even when substance use is present. That may involve reducing the amount of substances used, depending on the goals of the individual. It can even involve reducing substance use all the way down to zero. In fact, abstinence itself is a form of harm reduction. But when we start from a place of demanding abstinence, we do two things that are bad. First, we frequently set up individuals to fail. Rates of relapse for substance use disorders is about 50%, and that research came out before the opioid crisis started. When we construct recovery strictly in terms of abstinence only, we're constructing relapse as failure, and that is incredibly demotivating for somebody who's in recovery. It sometimes means that when people have the normal behavior of relapsing, the intense guilt and shame that follows relapse can intensify and prolong the relapse. The second bad thing about demanding abstinence first is that it frequently means de-emphasizing solving the underlying problem that's driving the problematic substance use in favor of a strict focus on the drug itself as the quote-unquote real problem. But in fact, like we've been discussing, drug use merely often represents the individual's strategy to cope with whatever the hell their actual problem is. And this is something that I think that AA gets right. Now we're going to apply our analysis so that we can dismantle the moral failure theory of addiction, which posits that substance misuse occurs because people have bad characters. For this one, we're going to examine a very Baltimore-centric problem, which is the use of heroin among low-income African-American individuals. Of course, white people in Baltimore use heroin too, but for this discussion, we're going to center the experiences of black people. The theory that I'm about to propose is not drawn from documented research, unlike the previous anecdote. This is me connecting pieces of circumstantial evidence in order to offer a narrative to explain one small part of why Baltimore is the most heroin-addicted city in the United States, with nearly 10% of the adult population here using heroin regularly. The theory goes like this. Historically speaking, Baltimore has had one of the most hyperactive public child welfare systems in the entire country. Child welfare, also known as Child Protective Services, or CPS, is the branch of local government tasked with preventing child abuse and neglect from occurring. Child welfare does a lot of things, removing kids from bad situations, managing foster care placements, adoptions, and also working to keep kids in their homes as well as to reunify kids with their parents under court supervision if they've been removed. It's a system that is as broken as it is important, and it has never at any point in its history received anything close to the amount of funding necessary to function properly. And when I say that Baltimore's child welfare system was hyperactive, what I mean is that for a long time, 
The city of Baltimore had a very high rate of out-of-home placements, which means that a lot of kids were getting removed from families and placed into foster care. I'm frustrated that I can't find my source on this, but I once read that the term foster care drift was created to describe Baltimore's public child welfare disaster. Foster care drift is a term that describes a situation where a youth remains in out-of-home foster care for an extended period of time with no clear path for either reunification with parents or adoption. Foster youth who quote-unquote age out of foster care by turning 18 before reunification or adoption takes place have notoriously bad outcomes. Homelessness, addiction, and incarceration are normal among this highly vulnerable population. College graduation rates for youth who age out of foster care are about 1%. It is a truism of public child welfare that it is much easier to remove a child from a family than for that child to return to their family. And most often, these were low-income black kids getting removed from their homes by middle-class white social workers who were judging the families on their caseloads based on their own white middle-class standards of how a family ought to look and function. In Baltimore, there have even been a number of intergenerational foster care placements, which means that there are children and their parents who were all removed from their own parents' care at one point or another and placed into a group home or with strangers or with another family member based on court order. Now, what I'm about to say is not true in every case, but in aggregate, when kids get removed from their parents, they tend not to do so great, even if their own parents weren't doing a good job with parenting them. One thing that frequently happens with child removal is that the child loses abilities that they had gained to self-soothe. Self-soothing means calming yourself down when you're upset. And in terms of developmental psychology, it is one of the main tasks associated with secure attachment. Say that you're a baby or a very little kid and that you're upset and your mother or father soothes you and helps you calm down. What's happening in that moment inside your brain is that endorphins are being produced. Endorphins are naturally occurring chemicals that reduce feelings of pain and distress. And these endorphins are what allow you to calm down. If you lose access to that caregiver that soothes you, then your ability to self-regulate by producing endorphins also starts to break down. This inability to self-soothe and self-regulate has a lot to do with why foster kids are so often diagnosed with ADHD, learning disabilities, and oppositional defiant disorder. Frequently, these diagnoses are casually misapplied and misused to describe a logical behavioral response that occurs following the trauma of having been forcibly removed from one's caregivers. As a result, foster youth tend to be terribly over-medicated and are frequently given adult antipsychotic medications at high dosages in order to make them more docile and compliant. However, this makes them more vulnerable to abuse and neglect, as well as inhibits their natural abilities to learn and play and be curious. But back to endorphins. If you're a kid and you're placed into foster care and your natural abilities to self-soothe are disrupted, then chances are you will grow into an adult who also experiences deficits in the production of endorphins. You may have depression and anger management problems. Heroin, meanwhile, is an opiate. And in terms of its chemistry, it is analogous to the endorphins which your own brain cannot properly produce due to your history of attachment trauma. 
Endorphin literally means morphine that's produced inside of you. Your brain wants endorphins. All brains do because endorphins help you feel good if you are feeling bad. But if you're a person who has lifelong deficits in endorphin production, and then you experiment with drugs as people do, and you happen to encounter heroin in the social environment, which is fairly common in Baltimore, then we can start to see how a history of attachment trauma can create a vulnerability, a predisposition to addiction, given that the experience of heroin represents getting access to that same soothing feeling that was taken away from you when you were removed from your family. And in fact, in providing psychotherapy to homeless people in Baltimore for years, whenever I would ask about what it feels like to shoot up heroin, the most common response I got was, it feels like a warm hug. So that's another way to know that drug addiction isn't just about having a bad moral character. Because for a lot of people who have childhood attachment trauma, something which, by the way, is exacerbated by exposure to extreme poverty, addiction is connected to the experience of having an open wound in your spirit. I want to just reiterate that I'm not attempting to make a general statement about African-American adults in Baltimore who use heroin or African-American adults in Baltimore who had contact with the public child welfare system growing up. However, it is the case that there is a correlation between foster care contact during childhood and problematic substance use in adulthood, and that in the case of Baltimore in particular, this was related to the form of institutionalized racism that took place when white middle-class social workers made race and class-based assessments about black family functioning that resulted in needless removal of children, often over the course of multiple generations. Which is also not to say that none of those removals were justified. As a former child welfare social worker, I can tell you that sometimes it is necessary to take a kid away from their parents and place them in a safer situation in foster care. It's really complicated. Okay, so the last message to counter about addiction is that it represents a biomedical illness and therefore has a biomedical solution in the form of rehab and or prescription medications, most frequently methadone or buprenorphine. A weird thing happened when, within the realm of policymaking, we decided to stop talking about addiction as a moral failure, and instead describe it as a biomedical illness. And the weird thing was that it became required for health insurers to pay for rehab for people experiencing addiction. This was part of Obamacare. As a result, a gigantic addictions treatment industry sprang up really fast in order to cash in. But because addiction is so complex, and we still really don't know how to treat it or how to cure it, it turns out that a lot of these operators were super shady and not that interested in helping people get well, but more interested in submitting reimbursable receipts to insurance providers, including Medicaid and Medicare. There's been a bunch of good reporting on this elsewhere, and it's an important topic. As for methadone maintenance therapy, or the use of buprenorphine, these medications do not cure a person's addiction, plain and simple, nor do they promise to. In fact, the use of these drugs is referred to medically as substitution therapy because all you're doing is substituting one drug, bupes or methadone, for another drug, heroin or oxy. Many clients have described substitution therapy to me as merely trading one addiction for another. 
Furthermore, methadone and buprenorphine both have street value and are abused and sold and traded and combined with other drugs with relative ease. They do not address the root problem of addiction, and they cannot cure it. However, they do represent an effective and important form of harm reduction. That is, using methadone and buprenorphine are safer than using heroin because we know that they're not laced with deadly chemicals and they're easy to titrate, which means measure out a consistent dosage, which is very useful for people who want to wean themselves off substitution therapy. Substitution therapy is helpful for a great many people in recovery from substance misuse, but it's not a cure. So what we're left with is the question of how to explain the opioid crisis and the increase in addiction we're seeing and sensing all around us. The short answer is it's complex, and there are many relevant factors. One factor that's gotten some attention over the past few months has been the intense efforts by the company Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin, to basically flood the market for years with prescriptions for that drug. Their tactics included lying to prescribers about the addictive capacities of the drug, despite internal research that demonstrated its danger. Just like the fossil fuel industry knew about carbon-driven climate change for decades and lied about it, just like the tobacco lobby knew about cancer and covered that up. Another factor that's being ignored publicly is the focus of the Rat Park experiments, that is, the impact of the social environment on one's vulnerability to addiction. That's because if we focused in an authentic way on the environmental influences on addiction, we would have to ask some really uncomfortable questions about the social impacts of the neoliberal economic project. And probably we would find that that project, which consists of dismantling the social safety net and increasing the assets of the wealthiest in society, is not compatible with a reduction in addiction rates. So here we can turn back to Bruce Alexander, the psychologist who did those Rat Park experiments, who in 2008 wrote a book called The Globalization of Addiction, A Study in Poverty of the Species. It's not too much of a stretch to say that Alexander predicted the opioid crisis. In his book, Bruce Alexander lays out his theory of addiction. He theorizes that given that lots of people use drugs, but only some people become addicted, addiction must represent a latent human potential that expresses itself under particular circumstances. The particular circumstance he hones in on is one that he calls dislocation, which he identifies as, quote, an enduring lack of psychosocial integration. According to Alexander, psychosocial integration refers to feeling like a part of things, having a defined role, knowing who you are and how you fit into the big picture. The more access you have to those types of emotions and feelings, the less likely you are to experience addiction. Alexander points out that in contemporary society, which he identifies by the spread of free market capitalism, quote, rich and poor alike are being torn from the close ties to family, culture, and traditional spirituality that constituted the normal fabric of life in pre-modern times, end quote. He argues, quote, Free market society subjects people to unrelenting pressures toward individualism, competition, and rapid change, dislocating them from social life. People adapt to this dislocation 
by concocting the best substitutes they can for a sustaining social, cultural, and spiritual wholeness, end quote. Alexander summarizes the economist and philosopher Karl Polanyi when he says, quote, Establishing the delicate interpenetration of person and society enables each person to satisfy simultaneously both individualistic needs and needs for community, to be free and still belong, end quote. The point he's making is that the way that society is currently set up around the obsession with consumer goods, ultra-pervasive advertising content designed to make you feel insecure and unworthy, the toxic degradation of the natural environment, exploitation of workers, and of course, rape culture, and intense oppression and identity-based violence, along with the gaslighting and conspiracies of silence around them, creates the conditions where the experience of dislocation is increasingly common, increasingly the norm, and a dislocated society, Alexander argues, is a society at risk for epidemic addiction. And for me, this poses another critique of people talking about substitution therapy, that is methadone and buprenorphine, as a complete cure for substance use disorders. Because in neoliberal capitalism, where healthcare is not considered a human right, Solutions to medical problems are almost always monetized and commodified, but if the relentless pursuit of profit is part of what's causing the problem with addiction, isn't it therefore philosophically misguided to imagine that the creation of yet more profit by selling methadone and buprenorphine could really be the whole solution? In episode one of A Feminist Therapist, we talked about the story of the two little fish who encounter an old man fish who says to them, how's the water boys? And then the old man fish swims away and the little fish turn to one another and they say, what the hell is water? When it comes to talking about the social conditions that produce addiction, we are all the little fish. We are trained from a young age to take for granted the excesses of capitalism. For example, extreme income inequality. And in fact, we are told regularly by politicians and pundits that neoliberal free market capitalism is the only economic system that can possibly work. These days, a lot of effort goes into preventing people from publicly asking uncomfortable questions such as, why aren't healthcare and affordable housing guaranteed when we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world? Why aren't dignified wages available to everybody who wants to work? Why are so many people required to face down odious inflationary student loan debt or to live paycheck to paycheck one health crisis away from homelessness? Why do economic pressures prevent people from being able to enjoy time with their children and spouses? Why are so many people in America taking antidepressant medications, and why is that considered normal? Why is rape culture normal? Why are men taught that they can do whatever they want to the bodies of women and girls? Why are white people taught that people of African descent are lazy and violent? Why is this normal? Can we please call bullshit? My take is that if we're genuinely interested in addressing the problem of addiction in society, then it's time to start asking these types of questions, as well as other questions directly pertaining to the root causes of addiction. Rather than punishing and blaming and shaming people experiencing addiction, we should be talking about how to create the conditions where sobriety makes sense. Rat Park worked because it incentivized sobriety. The tools for living in balance with substance use were deliberately provided. Because if we lived in Rat Park, if we created a society where all people, including women, gender non-conforming people, non-white people, and people without education and without advanced job skills, all had access to the things that they needed in order to live with dignity, then we would be seeing a real decrease in problematic substance use. 
Sure, there will always be outliers. Always, some individuals will experience problems with drugs and alcohol, even if they have what they need to live a decent life. But that does not mean we should be satisfied with a world where the risk of ending up dislocated and addicted is high and getting higher. The crisis of addiction and overdose is going to get worse before it gets better. And that's because our policymakers have an allergy to discussions about root causes and real solutions. But that doesn't mean we have to. Thanks for listening to Episode 5 of A Feminist Therapist. I'm David Averick. I welcome your comments and questions. You can email me, afeministtherapist at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter, but I don't really use those that much. I look forward to interacting with you. Thanks, and have an awesome day.